In terms of the sticky thoughts, I definitely think that it comes from an adaptive standpoint. And then I think it's also really helpful to think about all of these quote-unquote maladaptive processes as more something that's gonna arrive. But in principle, it's a good process because it creates this sense of maybe self-compassion, kindness, and mental flexibility that it's, it's not something that's completely wrong with me. It's just that it's not as adaptive in these circumstances. It's all about the balance, right? And if it goes a little bit out of balance, then it can become a problem. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hassenkamp. Today I'm speaking with cognitive scientist Marika van Vught. Marika is an assistant professor at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, where she's become a pioneer in studying mind-wandering and meditation through computer modeling. She's also advancing participatory research through her fascinating collaborations with Tibetan monastics, looking into some of their less explored practices. We get into a lot more about both of those topics in the show, as well as her passion for ballet and how her experience as a dancer is in a kind of dialogue with her experience as a scientist. I love the way Marika integrates cutting-edge neuroscience and computational modeling with a deep personal knowledge of meditation and the embodied experience of dance. She also holds, I feel, a really realistic view of what science can and can't tell us about the mind. I so appreciate her critical lens on the assumptions that we often make in science and her efforts to make research more inclusive and thus in many ways more relevant. I think this will all make sense by the time you get to the end of the episode. There's a lot of different topics in here, but they really weave together beautifully. And in some ways, they all touch on the topic of balance. I hope Marika's synthetic perspective on the mind is a meaningful one for you. I'm really happy to share with you Marika van Vogt. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Marika van Vucht. Marika, welcome to the show and thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm excited. Oh, thank you. So then you probably know I usually like to start with some background from the guests and kind of understanding how they got into the work that they're doing. So yeah, for you, how did you get interested in cognitive science and the mind and meditation and all of that? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you want to start. I, I remember um, I, I've been interested in meditation as a little kid. That's the wildest story that I remember being maybe like seven years old or so. And uh, the mother of a friend of mine used to meditate. And somehow I was fascinated by it, even though I had no idea what it was. So, yeah, I, I did a lot of pretend meditate as well as a kid. <laughs> so this is how we got started at that point. And, and for the brain and science, I think I, I didn't know much about it. I, I remember vividly doing a presentation about the brain in my biology class in high school, and I was really loving it. So I was like, you know, the brain, that's really interesting. Maybe I want to do something with that later. But the concept of a scientist... You know, I, I always like to say that I'm a failed ballet dancer who became a scientist. And that's really true, because as a teenager, my, my career dreams were really becoming a ballet dancer. And then that mm. failed. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I was like, well, you know, I'm, let's go to college. And I went to this very nice liberal arts and sciences college and um, got a chance to try a little bit of everything and then figure out that I really enjoyed um 
stuff with neuroscience and then um, yeah went into that and also at that point I, I was doing meditation but I think I was one out of the two Buddhists on campus and at that time even saying that you practice meditation was like really still pretty weird so uh-huh. I never even considered the fact that those two could somehow be brought together and then um, after college, I went on a backpacking trip to India for five months in a like gap year. Oh, wow. And I came across this book by Daniel Goleman called Destructive Emotions from the Mind Life Institute. And I was like, wow, so you can actually study meditation scientifically. And that's so cool. I want to do that with my life. And then, um, yeah, that's that was sort of my aspiration um, when I then started graduate school the year after, even though I didn't really go to like a meditation lab. I mean, there were very few meditation labs at the time. Anyway, it was sort of really the kind of thing you almost didn't want to say to people because um, it was, uh, well, career suicide, as we alluded to in the recent Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. Right. So, uh, so yeah, that's sort of how I rolled into it. And then that was the time that the first um, Mind and Life Summer Research Institute happened, I think 2004, something like Four, that. Yeah. So I, I went there and that was the first time I met other people that were interested in this. And I was like, well, this is what I really want to do. Um, I don't really know how, because my PhD advisor was not so excited about that either. But yeah, Um, You know, it's usually, I think, at least in my life, it's been like if you have a certain aspiration, then somehow you hold it in the back of your mind and things happen, opportunities come. And and yeah, there we are 20 years later and um, doing uh, some research in this area. So oh, that's fantastic. And I definitely want to come back around to your ballet experience, too, because uh, even though you haven't made that your career, I know you're still very active ballet dancer. So perhaps there's some interesting links and reflections there. But first, let's chat a little bit about your research. I know there's a few different areas that that I think would be really interesting to dig into. The first is you do a lot of computer modeling of the mind, Mm -hmm. particularly around mind wandering and distraction and and things like that. So I'd love to hear more about that. We haven't really talked much on the show about computer Mm -hmm. models. And so um, and I'm actually not that familiar with the nitty gritty of how that works. Um, Not that we need to get into the details, but... Um, just for the audience, maybe a little bit about why uh, you would do that approach and and how that works. Yeah, so um, maybe just to explain how how I got into it because I didn't even know it existed actually when I was uh, when I started graduate school and then I discovered that there's this whole field of mathematical psychology that's about making computer models of cognitive processes. And sort of the logic behind that is that um, I I guess there's two reasons for why you would want to do computational modeling. The first one is more of a methodological approach because, you know, in science we make theories and then we test those theories with experiments. But if you just make the theories with words, then very often there's quite a bit of flexibility with words so that you can easily sort of bend the words and and sort of explain a different pattern Mm afterwards sort of with your original theory whereas if you make um, a quantitative prediction that just says like the accuracy will be 85 percent in this condition and 74 um, percent in that condition it's very hard to change that after the fact so in that sense these computational models can be much more precise and also 
putting together a computational theory requires you to be very precise because you essentially have to tell a computer how this process would work, you think. And of course, all models are wrong. So um, it's not like computational models are more right than other kinds of models. And very often also, you can't quite capture everything in computational theory. So it's not like they are the best for all intents and purposes. But you know, for making quantitative and precise predictions, they're um, in many areas, they're very good. And then the other reasoning here is that it's more of an engineering reasoning that you only understand something when you can really build it. That's sort of an engineering mindset. And I think there's also something quite compelling about that. Again, maybe not everything can be built in these sort of more uh, computational systems, but for a large subset of phenomena, you can do that. So that's why I've been kind of interested in that. And it also, for me, it's been a natural consequence from um, my own training or an interest in in both um, sort of physics and math, computer science, as well as cognitive science. And, and so this is a sort of a natural bringing together. I was very excited when I found out that there's a field called mathematical psychology that's all about that. I was like, you know, this is maybe my special niche that I can do something with. That's really cool. So do you want to get into some of the details of your models on distraction? And uh, I was reading a little bit of your work and how you propose that distractions are like targeting unused resources in the cognitive system mm -hmm. or something. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, um, so I created a model of mind wandering. And the fun thing uh, that I always like to say about this is that it's surprisingly hard to get a computer to mind wander. Um, sort of hmm. pointing at how uh, uniquely human this capacity is, which maybe is one of the reasons that in the recent years, maybe the past eight years or so, I've targeted a lot of my labs um, focused towards mind wandering, sort of this process of, we often call it task unrelated thoughts or, um, you know, the kind of thought process that goes somewhere else than you are maybe consciously directing it to. Yeah, I guess if you were saying it's hard to get a computer to mind wander, and that makes sense, because if you tell it to focus on something, it's just going <laughs> to forever focus on that, I exactly. suppose. So, yeah. Right. We're not like that. Yeah. No. And I think that's also the really cool thing about humans. And it maybe also shows why mind wandering can be so adaptive, because I think it's the, the, the kind of the thought process that allows us to take a step back and say like, hey, maybe do I want to focus on this or maybe do I want to switch to another kind of thought process? So for example, um, a lot of the research we do in a psychology or a cognitive science lab is we give people a really boring task and then we measure um, their accuracy and their response time and then we draw conclusions about cognition. But, you know, from a perspective of a participant, that's just maybe, uh, you know, Maybe they're a bit interested if you're if you're lucky, but otherwise they're just interested in getting some money. So it's really not their top priority to do this task. So they also have what another um, mind and life uh, scientist, uh, Dave Meyer, would call the task of life, you know, and that's way more important than our stupid tasks in the lab. So it's always good <laughs> to, you know, take that step back and realize, okay, yes. yeah, this is really what's going on. Um, so... There's this constant, I think, competition between all these different priorities. And some of those, like we have the tendency in cognitive science and psychology to just focus on these tasks as if that's the whole world. But of course, from the perspective of the participant, really, it's only a small part of the world and it's constantly competing with other stuff. And if you've had 
Um, if you have, for example, significant worry or you have this really interesting idea, then that's going to be competing with your focus on the task, for example. So yeah, mind wandering is constantly in competition with the main task. And if your main task that you're doing in a psychology lab is, is kind of boring and simple, then you have lots of resources left over, you could say, to do other stuff like mind wandering. <laughs> right. One thing I love that you've really brought into this all of us, of course, are familiar with the experience of mind wandering, especially if you meditate, it becomes very, very obvious that your mind is going all over the place all the time. And you've focused a little bit on a concept of stuckness or mm -hmm. like thoughts that are, are really sticky um, is a term that some people in this field use. So could you share a little bit about what's happening there? Um, it seems like a little bit more than just a mind wandering. It's mm -hmm. it's like derailing almost or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I in a way, you could say if we're in this mindset that there's a competition between a task process and a mind wandering process, if this mind wandering process is very sticky is the word I, I like to use, then it constantly pulls us away from all the other stuff we're trying to do. And this can happen, for example, when we're worrying about something. That's an example of quite a sticky process because it is subjectively so important to us that it tends to creep in whenever we want to do other stuff. So yeah, this is how I um, yeah, think of, of this concept of stickiness. And interestingly enough, it turns out when you're trying to measure it, like one of the ways we have started to do that in my lab is we ask just people like, how difficult is it to disengage from these thoughts? And uh, when people find it difficult to disengage, it's quite sticky and that would also be associated with this experience of, of this thought that constantly, you know, wants to grab you and it's very difficult to to let it go. And then it also tends to be quite intrusive in the task. And also what you will find is that, um, for example, in the, the brain signals that we're recording, we like to mostly focus on EEG in my lab. These brain signals uh, tend to respond less to the external world. This is a process that's also been referred to as perceptual decoupling. So it's as if you're more focused on these sticky thoughts than on the other stuff that's out there that, for example, is the cognitive task that we ask you to do. But, you know, the brain's responses to this cognitive task will be much lower and you will probably be more focusing on these internal thoughts. like that idea you were sharing about perceptual decoupling that feels so accurate because when you're you know really stuck in your head or mind wandering or ruminating about something your perceptual systems aren't really online you're not perceiving what's happening in the in the present moment and uh, of course that's such a part of contemplative practice is trying to retrain ourselves to focus on the present moment which is often you know sensory experience and I know that you've also worked mindfulness into these models, right? Can you share a little bit about that, like a meditating computer? Um, yeah, so we also created a meditating computer that was really fun. In fact, just a fun side story here is that I started this modeling of meditation 
during a uh, visiting scholarship at um, Mind and Life Institute, uh, which at that point was at Amherst, and they had this beautiful house which they had for visiting scholars. It was really awesome. And and one of the features the house had was also a meditation room. So we had offices and then we also had our meditation room. So it was like um, sort of a really wonderful time in my life that I could just be working and then uh, be like, how does this work? And then I would go to practice a little bit to check it out, you know, in a first person sense. And then I would go back to, um, you know, thinking about the code and writing, uh, writing some code or, you know, thinking about what cognitive operations should be implemented. So it was really fun. Um, but eventually this, uh, this meditation model is consisting of a competition between this mind-wandering process and a, an attentional focus process that's now focused not on, well, actually, I think my first meditation model, it was a, a model meditating on a visual stimulus because that's the close, it's, it's more similar to a cognitive task, so it's easier to model. But I mean, in principle, it could just as well be the breath. It doesn't really matter. Computationally speaking, it's just you're focusing on something and then Initially, you're focused very strongly, but the feature of this model is that basically any kind of stimulus will tend to decay in time. So um, it, it will tend to grow weaker, just like all of our memories, basically. Everything that occurs in our mind will grow weaker over time. So the weaker and weaker this, this maybe intention to focus on the, uh, on the breath or on the visuals, um, visual stimulus that will um, tend to make the model more prone to switch to another priority, which could be mind-wandering. And so there's this constant interchange. So you would be, um, you know, focusing on your meditation object. And then at some point you would be taken over by the mind-wandering process. And that mind-wandering process is essentially in my model, a series of memory retrievals. Because basically I think most of the time when we're mind-wandering, we're just remembering one thing and that brings up another thing and another thing and another thing. And then I had a lot of trouble figuring out how this mind wandering process would end because I, I looked into, well, obviously cognitive scientists text wouldn't really say anything about that because um, mm. they are not really about how meditation works. And then I went into meditation text and also couldn't really find anything. And I talked to meditation teachers and then well, so the best thing I could eventually come up with is something like it's just this thought that pops in your mind that reminds you of the meditation. So I guess it must be another memory that's just hanging out there. And the more difficult it is to reach that memory, the longer you're going to be distracted. So this is how this model mm. works. Oh, I really like that. The The cycle of distraction and focus is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, the small amount of research that I've done in this field has been on that concept. So um, I've nerded out a whole bunch uh, thinking about that. Actually, like I, I basically present it almost every time I talk about this model and um, and I talk about meditation. This is like I started with your paper. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great to hear. I'm really glad it was useful. Well, I was just bringing that up because I love this question you raise about how do you get out of the mind wandering back to the focus? When I was doing this work, I was really wrestling with that question of like, what is this? awareness. How does that awareness emerge? And it feels like kind of really a black box. You know, it's such a central part of meditation practice and of what we're trying to train in meditation. But it's interesting how slippery of a concept it is when you when you really try to nail it down. So 
I just appreciate that you're trying to make steps in that direction of, yeah. of formalizing that. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, this reminds me to to mention that this is, you know, just really the concentration aspect of meditation. It's not yes. really it, it's the concentration aspect of what we call focused attention meditation in sort of the more scientific literature, really concentration meditation or um maybe a single pointed meditation, depending on the tradition you're coming from. So there are many other forms of meditation. Um, and actually, that's also what I partly do more research on now. But um, figuring out how to model these more awareness practices is way harder. And I haven't quite been able to do that yet. But it's really important to make sure that um, it's often meditation is misunderstood, I think, in the popular liter literature also as this kind of a process that's just about being constantly concentrated on it. Whereas I think a really important part of it is is actually more going back to these sticky thoughts, um, because a large part of the meditation in, in the way I've learned it, at least in the way I think about it, is that it's becoming more friendly towards your own thoughts. And funnily enough, when you become more friendly to your own thoughts and you realize they're just thoughts, then they tend to become in general less sticky. So this is how I got interested in this whole concept of stickiness and also in this idea or, or exploring the idea, first of all, how we can be measure stickiness. And secondly, um, is maybe thoughts in general more sticky when people are suffering from disorders such as depression, for example. And um, if we go for certain interventions like mindfulness, can that reduce the stickiness? So, you know, all of those questions. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that too, of the idea of stickiness and thoughts. I feel like it bridges a number of different struggles that people can have uh, in the kind of mental, cognitive, psychological realm. Like you mentioned, depression is something that's very marked by stickiness and stuckness of thoughts, but also trauma, right? Or, or you know, a PTSD where thoughts just keep coming back. So I think it's interesting to be able to kind of move one level up from these different diagnoses that we have and these different categories that we've created about like, oh, you have this or this issue going on, whereas it can move things forward, I think, at least maybe even therapeutically to think about it at this other level of like, oh, really what's happening is your thoughts are stuck in this loop or something. And like, how do we get it out? So it also maybe sheds some light on why mindfulness or meditation practices can help a number of, you know, all these different kinds of, of conditions. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you think about it, it this, this sticky thought is probably a problem in many disorders. Um, uh, so I've really focused on depression, but I, I definitely agree that this is probably um, uh, a problem in many disorders. I can imagine also addiction is an extreme case of mm -hmm. stickiness, but then the maybe the uh, substance of um, that you're addicted to is is the sticky thoughts, for example. Right, so, right. Yeah. And anxiety in a similar yeah. way. Yeah. yeah, and PTSD. So I think it has lots of potential. So this is why I think it's so interesting to try to figure out are there ways that we can track these kind of sticky thoughts over time that we can better understand why they're sticky for how long they're sticky and what circumstances, how can different um, manipulations or interventions affect that. Um, and, and also that's where I've been thinking about computational modeling as well. Like, can we use to some extent these computational models to predict what, um, what will be the effects of certain interventions on stickiness? So if we can model meditation, maybe we can better understand how, how it may have an effect. Yeah. 
This is bringing up just one other thought. I, I would like to go down a path on this is uh, I, I heard recently um, the researcher Lisa Feldman Barrett, who you might be familiar with her work. She's done a lot of work to advance the predictive models of, of how the mind works. Yeah. And she was talking about trauma and how basically, you know, when you experience something as threatening, it can wire into your model of the world and your predictive systems just kind of keep repeating that in order to keep you safe and make sure that that threat doesn't occur again. Yeah. So it, it got me thinking about this idea of stickiness and prediction and how, like, is it serving a purpose from a survival sense or something like that? And it's just kind of gone awry. Um, so I wonder if if you think about the predictive stuff in your models or if you thought about that in relation to stickiness. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. And I've, I've never made that connection with the predictive stuff um, and stickiness. Having said that, um, in terms of the stickiness, I definitely think that it comes from an adaptive standpoint. And I think it's also really helpful in general to think about all of these quote unquote maladaptive processes as more something that's gone awry. But in principle, it's a good process because it creates this sense of maybe self-compassion, kindness, and actually therefore almost like this mental flexibility that it's it's not something that's completely wrong with me. It's just that, you know, maybe it's not as adaptive in these circumstances. It's sort of like there's a mismatch between the circumstances and the process. Right. So um, it, it just, if we're a little bit more chill about that process, then we should all be good. Like, for example, also sticking is, um, it maybe has also some sense that allows people to really almost becoming obsessive about something is also maybe a form of stickiness. And that can also be really good. It allows you to really dive into solving an equation or, you know, really developing a theory. Sometimes that requires really obsession. And I would almost sometimes say that if we can also have an obsession with meditation that allows us to do this very boring process for a long enough time to cause a change or, um, you know, any kind of difficult skill requires some level of obsession. So that's in general... I would say not bad, but when it's all about the balance, right? And if it goes a little bit out of balance, then it can become a problem. So I think that's, uh, yeah, generally a very important thing to keep in mind. Um, makes everything, of course, much more complicated because we can't say, oh, you know, this is good, this is bad. Right. It's, it's it's really about the balance. But at the same time, maybe it's that's the kind of conceptions we need more than ever in this world that tends to become so polarized. Like I, I remember you had a very inspiring conversation with Amy Cohen-Varela about this. And then on the other hand, the predictive stuff, um, I've definitely been following that. I've not really been using these kind of predictive models myself. And the most important reason is that I find the concept of predictive processing very compelling, that we're constantly sort of having some concepts that we place upon the world, that perception is also a, um, by the way, this is my understanding of the predictive stuff, but <laughs> yeah. that perception is an active process. It's not like, oh, you have some pristine input that you then perceive and that's independent of your pre-existing ideas. No, we constantly are sort of creating our perceptions. That makes a lot of sense to me. But computationally speaking, I think there are some people that say that only Carl Friston understands these models. <laughs> and <laughs> right. I, I would say that that tends to be a little bit the case or to the extent that it's been worked out, it's been such simplistic situations that they're not really relevant to the kind of scenarios I'm thinking about. So then 
uh, yeah, I don't find it very usable on, on, on that computational level. I'd rather go with computational models that are a bit more concrete um, for the kind of predictions I want to be making. You mentioned a little bit ago that you're interested in, you know, studying different forms of meditation as well, besides this kind of focused attention uh, meditation. And so that brings me to a really fascinating aspect of your work. You've been working with Tibetan monastics uh, in India and studying some of their um, more, at least more unusual for us in the West yeah. um, kinds of practices. So maybe you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I mean, actually, um, one of the most inspiring things of attending the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute again was that this time there was actually a panel of five Tibetan monastics that came to garrison as well. And for the first time, I think there was a real conversation. So very often in the past, it's been that especially the monastics felt sort of too shy to really contribute to the conversation. And then there was not much of a conversation happening. And now we're finally starting to see that. So that's very exciting. So I've been uh, working with a group of Tibetan monks from uh, a monastery in South India called Sarajay Monastery. It's one of the um, most important Tibetan monastic universities. Um, like Tibet basically had three major universities, Sarajay Pungandan, and they've all been reconstituted in exile. And now, now they're in India and, and really... Um, a lot of people think that uh, any monk um, in the Buddhist tradition practices mostly meditation. But for example, in those monastic universities, that's really not true. And mostly what they practice is, um, you could say, philosophy, um, but also very interestingly, monastic debate. So uh, what I mean actually with uh, practicing philosophy is that they memorize the scriptures, then they contemplate these scriptures and think about, you know, what does it really mean? Is this consistent with my experience, with previous kind of texts and so on? And they maybe try to find some holes and then they debate it with another person in a collaborative sense. So it's, it's when you look at it, it almost looks like the monks are, um, and nuns do it too, by the way, um, monks or nuns are fighting with each other. And they're shouting and they're clapping. It looks very exciting. But then actually what they are doing when you learn how to do it. Actually, last week we had um, at my university, we had a summer school where one of the tracks that we offered was monastic debate. So our uh, students also learned uh, to practice this monastic debate uh, technique. And it's really collaboratively trying to find inconsistencies and uh, having a certain position. So it's not at all about convincing another person of your position or your point. It's really about, okay, um, you're free to choose any position now, and I'm going to try to figure out, you know, what are the problems with this position? And then we'll find out together. And um, yeah, that that's what it's all about. Yeah. So it's very exciting. It is. It's so cool. I remember the first time I saw this, I was just 
blown away because I think we also in the West tend to have this concept of monks and nuns as like very quiet and calm and, you know, they're just sitting and meditating or something, as you said. And this is the most active, loud, it's like some combination of theater and sport. And it's, um, it is, it's very exciting to watch, even if you don't understand the Tibetan that they're saying, <laughs> you kind of can get the sense of it. And it's also very choreographed. Um, so it's a fascinating practice. And in thinking more about your work, it's, it really, I guess, is a form of kind of analytical meditation. Is mm -hmm. that right? Is that how they view it? Yeah, I, w I would say so. So you have the individual analytical meditation where you for yourself sort of consider uh, these, like, what does it really mean, a certain concept? And, and you know, the kind of main topics uh, of Buddhist philosophy are really exploring uh, interdependence and impermanence um, and sort of the nature of things, whether they're singular or consist of multiple parts. And that seems all really simple, but if you really explore in your own experience from you know, this is just my understanding, of course, of what they're doing. But, you know, um, even in my very limited experience, if you really explore these topics, you very quickly start to find lots of problems. I mean, this microphone that's standing here in front of me seems very solid, but I can also be sure that in maybe 100 years, it probably won't be there anymore. So, you know, when is this changing? When is it going to be disappearing? It's 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 very interesting um, uh, how, how that all works. And I can easily understand that this can also be a very transformative practice. And, and that's also the kind of intuition I got when I talked to these monks. I mean, they have a, such a sense of gentleness to them, also a sense of tremendous humor and mental flexibility. So it was like, you know, something's going on. And I think, for example, His Holiness Dalai Lama is a great example of that. Probably everyone can sort of see that kind of gentleness, humility, um, fluidity, so it's not a crazy idea to assume that there's something about the practice that would cause this. And the, then the question is, how does this work? So um, in 2015, at the Mind and Life meeting at Sarah Monastery, actually, we started a research project to think about how can we study this practice and we wanted to do this not in the sense of um, sort of a neo-colonialistic way that we would just come up with experiments and the monks would be our participants and then we take away the data and be done with it. Now, we really wanted to go into this very collaborative research. So we partnered with Science for Monks and Nuns, um, this organization that's been organizing science education for monks and nuns for many years. And so they are very well grounded into the Tibetan community. And they really helped us to have equal conversations where the monks weren't just our subjects, but they were equal partners and they were also helping us um, like figure out how to talk so that the monks could understand and also how to encourage the monks to really speak up and find out like where we're missing connections with each other. So this was a really fascinating process because how often do you get to be almost at the beginning of a new scientific field and really be figuring out things as you go? Because nobody knew like how this analytical meditation works on a psychological or cognitive level, how you should study it. And then on the other hand, also this collaborative doing research together. Um, I mean, citizen science on steroids, you could say, because now it's citizen science in the sense that these citizens, the monks in this case, are helping us to collect the data, but also they are helping us form the hypothesis, interpret the data, and also learn about what it what science is 
along the way. So it was mm. really meant to be a two-way process. So we're also figuring that out. So it, it's um, it's been a very exciting project. And I mean, we're still going strong. Uh, we've published a couple of papers, but um, yeah, we're still meeting every few weeks on Zoom. And then every so often we meet in person as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Have you had any findings yet about kind of how this process might be working? Yeah, so of course, um, it's also slow science. So, um, yes. <laughs> but we have published a couple of papers. Um, uh, one of the papers showed, for example, that during monastic debates, um, you tend to see an increase in uh, what's called frontal midline theta. So theta waves are certain brain waves. Uh, they're between four and nine hertz. And basically, um, this is a kind of brain signal that you also tend to see in other kinds of meditation practices. So this was suggesting that, yeah, maybe uh, they're in that sense also a kind of an attention training. And, and actually, we found that more experienced monks had more of this. And, and this was also quite consistent with our own observation that especially experienced monks, when they're practicing this this form of debate they kind of forget everything around them and whereas the beginners are way more still distractible so there's really also some sense of an attention training uh going on so that's been a major finding so far right now we're um also working on more of the affective side of things and looking at um uh, self-reported emotion data and um one of the more consistent findings seems to be that negative emotions go down uh, for more experienced monks, which is also quite consistent with the sort of first-person observation of interacting with these uh, individuals. Um, so, yeah, but there is, I mean, it's it's much more subtle than than that, but the details are still being worked out. So those are, I'd say, at this point, the main findings. And then actually another interesting thing that has come out of the research that we're we've just um, submitted is I've been working in cognitive science, like basically my whole scientific career, but all of these tasks are really assuming that you've had a certain type of education that really values abstraction and taking things in a certain context and applying them in a different context. It doesn't really matter exactly how a person says things or how it fits in any individual context, really like generalizing across contexts. So this is why in our cognitive tasks, we very often use abstract stimuli like letters or isolated words. When we presented monks with these tasks, they were already a little bit confused, like it doesn't make sense to us. And even if they were willing to help us, they, they didn't quite, sometimes they, they found it quite distracting. They were confused by it. Hmm. And then also if we looked at the pattern of results, they didn't do particularly well and actually most of the time, less experienced monks tended to do better. And what was relevant about these less experienced monks is they had their education that they had received was a bit more like our modern education, whereas the more experienced monks were more often like monks that had come straight from Tibet that had been nomads until that time, so not really received any modern education and really just received the education in the monastery, which is much more like philosophical, uh, memorizing texts, really focusing on the details of text in context and subtleties of how words are being used in this context, in this sense. So the cognitive tasks that we had been using really were intended for people that had been trained with a Western style or modern Western style education, and not so much for these other types of education. So 
Um, I think it raises a lot of questions also about, you know, the, the biases in our uh, Western cognitive science and probably also even um, affective science as well that's probably suffering from similar biases. So, yeah, we're also working on some very exciting process of trying to develop tasks that are a little bit more geared towards the kind of training that the monks are getting that makes a little bit more sense to them. So I think that's also been kind of really interesting discussions that we've been having that's you really question even the very foundations of of science. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's always a good thing to do. I love that that's coming out of this engagement. Um, have you studied anything about, well, first of all, it's a kind of a feat, I think, to um, usually when you study brain waves or, or do any brain kind of imaging, the person is sitting very still. <laughs> There's all sorts of motion artifacts that can mm -hmm. happen. And of course, as we were saying, debate is a really active process. So uh, kudos to you for figuring out how to measure all this in, a, in the process of constant motion. And I'm, I'm wondering, too, is there a time when the brains... So maybe we should say a little bit about how it's set up and it's two people kind of going mm -hmm. back and forth and one yeah. person is questioning the other person who's answering. And um, as you say, it appears adversarial, but it's actually a, a collaborative experience. So there's two people. And um, have you looked at all about like brain synchrony mm -hmm. between the two? I think that's just a fascinating area of yeah. research in general. So yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah, this was also one of the things we set out to do. So we brought um, a special kind of EEG system that's much more resistant to motion, um, because it has, um, well, the signal always has to be amplified in EEG, because our brain waves are so incredibly weak. Um, obviously, otherwise, you know, you would feel like um, uh, whenever you touch your brain, you would probably feel like an electric shock or something. So thankfully, <laughs> right. this doesn't happen. It's very weak. But, you know, that means that if we record it, um, we have to amplify it. And you normally this is done uh, in a, a separate kind of little box. And then it has to travel through wires. And when these wires move, this creates a lot of interference. So we had uh, special electrodes that did the amplification already on the electrode itself. So then you have much less motion artifacts. So then uh, we also, we recorded the EEG from the two debaters at the same time. And we were also curious about the synchrony between the two brains. And we did find that when the debaters were sort of agreeing, um, then when they were, you know, thinking uh, probably along similar kind of lines, their brains were more synchronized with each other than when they were disagreeing. Um, but I, I didn't mention this so far in, in my um, report of the results of our study, because we didn't really find a difference between less and more experienced monks. So I don't think that this is really well, at least we didn't find evidence that this was modulated by training. Um, so maybe there, the development took place in the first six years of training and we got the monks once they had, you know, become quite proficient in debate. So maybe this doesn't change anymore. Um, I don't know. But yeah, that's so, so far our findings. And I also find that I've been doing more research on interbrain synchrony in a variety of contexts, ranging from uh, dancers in some very wild <laughs> studies um, to more controlled lab studies. And the more you control it, the less interbrain synchrony we find at least. Hmm. So it just seems like a very fragile signal. So this is why I'm not so confident about those results. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's an area that I know it's quite new in cognitive science, looking at two brains at once and yeah. understanding, you know, if they sync up and what that correlates with, you know, in the experience of the people. Exactly. And, and it seems like um, it's in large part 
in the Eastern our hands really driven by people sort of looking at the same thing and, and getting the same input and their brains tend to be synchronized when they have the same kind of stimulation but this more free-flowing um, kind of really understanding each other and the social process a bit less although I mean our study with dancers was also really interesting um, where we really worked with dancers to try to understand how to connect to each other through movement. And the reason we wanted to do this was exactly because we wanted to find out is this interbrain synchrony is this driven by moving together and especially moving synchronously, uh, because that's also part of what we do in debate. So there's um, these descriptions of monks really sort of moving kind of in sync. And, you know, one moves forward and the other moves back. And there's sort of this real uh, kind of dialogue. Uh, so we wanted to explore that dimension a little bit more um, with dancers. Um, and and it became a whole adventure in itself um, to collaborate with dancers because we, we also were applying the same kind of method that we really wanted to make this an equal dialogue. And that made it really exciting, but also really difficult. Um, because especially artists, they have been trained to never do the same thing. And as scientists, we want to repeat oh, something right. like a million <laughs> times the same way. So we get enough um, you know, data that we can also see like what's consistent over all these iterations. So there's a little bit of a mismatch in methods here. Right. <laughs> yeah. But we, we actually learned um, from all these explorations, some really surprising in, in my mind uh, things Um which is that initially I went into the project thinking, you know, the way that people connect through movement is moving synchronously. Um, but then actually through working with the dancers, we found that really moving synchronously, I mean, it does make people feel a bit more connected and also their brains synchronize a little bit more. But really the much more powerful way to connect to other people is moving as if you're in a dialogue. Because then I think um, I think a reason is that then you really have to pay attention to what's going to happen. It's not so predictable. Whereas with synchrony, you can predict what's going to happen. It's not there's no surprise, so so it's not so engaging. And also another way that was very powerful subjectively and also objectively in the brain activity was if they moved like as if they had a single body um, because there you have to also very precisely constantly like check what the other person is doing. So. It's um, very interesting findings, I think. fascinating and it transitions us into this final area I wanted to chat with you about is your experience as a dancer and I love that you've been able to bring that in to the research as well so I'm just curious your reflections of course in this domain of cognitive science and contemplative science we view the mind as very embodied and that's a big part of how we think about mind and of course in dance I'm sure that is very apparent so I'm just wondering if you have examples of like your experience in dance, how it has informed the way you think about the mind or I don't know, just any reflections of that synthesis. I think it's such an interesting um, bringing together of worlds. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been fascinating as well. Um, I, I think at the same time, 
I'd say that even in, in the, the, the science of meditation, not necessarily people think of the mind as embodied. I'd say in many contexts, often they forget about that dimension. I, a lot, especially a lot of the earlier research on meditation was almost like, okay, there's the mind and we're just going to focus on the mind and the brain. And um, uh, of course, the brain is part of the body. Um, and even the fact that people, in a way, talk about the brain as if it's separate from the body is kind of funny, I think. Yeah. So there's that. Um, and also from the dance perspective, I would say that not necessarily all dancers are that conscious or embodied. I think a lot of dancers learn to almost turn off the signals of their body so they can do all the amazing stuff they do mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, push past their physical limits. So um, it's, it's not necessarily a connection, but there can be a very strong connection. So um, I've been really trying to also experiment a lot with bringing these together because somehow they, for me, they're both sort of, it makes a lot of sense to bring them together. So in my own experience with ballet, I found it's a fantastic attention training um, because if you're practicing ballet and you think about other stuff, then you're lost. Like you have to remember the steps. You have to, you know, trying to sense into all the parts of your body and what they're doing and what they're doing to right thing and you have to be aware of what the other people are doing so you're in the right configuration with all the other people and you're not in anyone else's way and you know so there are so many dimensions to it and then there's the emotions that you may be expressing and the music that you have to be connected to as well so it's constantly like connecting to all these different levels of experience it's a very rich way of connecting to your experience and, and really when I do it I, I forget about everything else uh, most of the time which is yeah that's maybe one reason I love it too um, and in that sense it can be a fantastic training of this awareness of, of trying to really be aware of of everything both internally in your own body as well as externally and at the same time especially ballet is quite challenging because it has this very strong evaluative dimension to it that, you know, there's a right shape and a wrong shape. Mm. And um, so it's also a beautiful challenge to try to work with that. And how do I, um, how do I hold myself to that? How do I relate to that self-evaluative dimension and not get too wrapped up in kind of hopes and fears about, you know, am I doing it good enough? Am I totally making a fool of myself? And those are the kind of thoughts, that, especially maybe as an amateur dancer, I get a lot. And I think other people too, from my conversations. But at the same time, when you're really touching in with all these different aspects of your experience and your awareness, then you don't even have the time to think about all these self-evaluation. That's when the magic happens. So yeah, that's for me, the connection. And then I think also... Touching into your body in the last maybe two years, I got involved in um, a, in a project about what's called embodied critical thinking, where it's mm. um, a collaboration with researchers from different universities in Europe, um, Iceland and Aarhus and the Technion in Israel and so on. And it is a project where we're trying to explore um, the root of thinking in the body and maybe also using the the body to um, connect more to our experience because we tend to have, especially in the academia, we're very much trained to, to think only in these abstract terms, but then we might be leaving out kind of like our intuition, which is very often more rooted in the body and we don't pay attention to it. We almost learn to ignore it. 
Mm. So with these methods, and we're using a, a variety of methods. Um, so one is called Thinking at the Edge, which was developed by a philosopher called Eugene uh, Gentlin. The other is Microphenomenology, and um, we're also using meditation. And we're also using cognitive science to understand like what's going on here and even to think about the mind in these other ways. Um, and then we're also using dance. So I got to teach dance and movement um, in these kind of summer schools as well. So yeah, it's it been very interesting to consider dance also more from that perspective as a tool to explore sort of the roots of thinking because, I mean, it's a constant interaction between our body and our thought process. And, you know, our thought process influences how we form our body. So, um, you know, in some sense, also your body can never really lie. Um, like you can see it in people's body language, how, how they feel. And on the other hand, the way we move our body um, and the way we hold our body also has a profound influence on how we feel and how we think. So I think it's a very interesting and also underexplored dimension um, of thinking. And it's really also very healthy uh, for me, um, at least to to bring these wider dimensions of experience more into my research. So um, because connecting to the body and also connecting, becoming more aware of these influences of the environment sort of um, takes the um, focus a little bit away from the just me and myself to the much more broader environment, becoming much more aware of how, I, you know, I'm constantly co-constructing the environment with my thoughts and the, the, the environment um, and my body as well. They are also constantly influencing myself um, as well. So, um, and of course, then this is a bit challenging to figure out how to relate that to this academic work, which is really mostly focused on trying to abstract away all of these layers of the mm. environment, mm -hmm. which, you know, it, it, at the same time, that's why it's helpful to go into these explorations and to realize that this is what we're doing in science. I mean, I'm not a proponent of just saying, okay, we're then throwing away all these methods. No, they are very useful and very powerful. But we have to then remember that whatever we are finding in this very abstracted world that we have in our lab does not always necessarily generalize to the way more complex world out there. So, yeah. Mm. That's such an important takeaway. Yeah. I love the, what you just described, that um, collaborative investigation that you're doing about thinking. And the way you described your experience of dance and ballet really there's so many overlaps. I mean, I wouldn't even say overlaps. I'd say it is a meditative practice or contemplative practice um, in the way you described it. So that is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm about to go to ballet camp in uh, two days um, again. And so I went there last year and that was such a powerful experience uh, because basically what we do there is we get together with a bunch of amateur dancers from around the world and we learn a ballet and we put it on stage we perform it in uh, a week which is crazy oh my goodness like you so we basically have every day from nine to six that we're working on it and then we put it on stage but the only way you can really do that is to be well eventually it's some at least for me it was like some mixture between or oscillation between anxiety but also pure awareness of of, of being there like being in this, this state of, of being as much as possible aware of everything that was going on in the stage because 
nobody really knows the ballet very well because it's been too short right and we're all only amateur dancers um so you have to be so aware of what everyone else is doing and that's why it, you're really in this, um, yeah, you could call it an, an active process in its purest sense. You're constantly co-creating this new thing that you put on the stage as best as possible for the audience. It's sort of a gift. And um, yeah, I think that, that that's one of the powerful things that um, dancing and especially also performing can give you is it can put you in this state that you're not so concerned with your own mental things. I actually had that experience too when I was performing a few weeks ago. And for the first performance, I was really still in a very self-evaluative state. And I, I noticed that I couldn't really connect so much with what the others were doing. And the moment you're really tuning much more into what the others are doing, the, this self-evaluative process is gone. And it is so liberating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then it's also quite connected to these things of like compassion quite naturally, because you're, yeah, I mean, it is very simple sense. It's not like I'm actively trying to be compassionate, but it's just like you're just constantly being open and naturally sort of responsive to the needs of the others and, and what the others are doing. And it's almost the barrier between myself and others disappears a little bit. So, yeah. Beautiful. I feel like at least traditionally ballet is considered to be a very rigid and sometimes almost harsh, you know, form of training. Like you said, there's a perfection and like yeah. the right way or the wrong way of doing things. And I wonder from the way you described it, this more sense of trying to not do that self-evaluative and, and actually tune into your body, you know, in times even when there may be pain or things like that, which I think traditionally in ballet, you're taught to like ignore that. And yeah. so... I wonder just about that kind of dissonance and if you've run into issues like in training or just even in your own self about those two ways of approaching it, you know, butting heads or anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's almost like a constant challenge, but I've been trying to find teachers that help me develop this more adaptive process where um, actually, one of my teachers, Julie Gill, she runs this amazing online uh, ballet studio for adults only. And she really calls this aggressive curiosity, uh, which I think has a lot of overlap with what we're trying to cultivate and at least um, a lot of the awareness meditation practices. So constantly trying to practice curiosity rather than, okay, no, I suck. This is, uh, you know, the wrong line again. And I've made this mistake again, because that's not helpful. It, yeah. it just takes you away from what you're trying to do. You know, there is a perfection, but um, at the same time, we are human, right? So it's, it's almost life is all about trying to figure out ways to just be curious about how do I get closer to this perfection, but also be okay with wherever you are at this point, because there is no use in in getting frustrated in, in all kinds of hopes and fears and even worrying like where you are in this level. And I think it's also important in the, um, at least I find it helpful for the rest of my work as well, because in science too, like there is very much a sense of, you know, there is something more right and something more wrong. Um, we're, it's, it's not like you can just do anything and say anything. No, there's, you know, there's definitely some, also some sense of perfection that you're trying to reach to in a way also almost never reach. But 
focusing more on the curiosity aspect of it rather than the hopes and fears because the mo more you get into this fearful state of, oh, I've made a mistake, the more you want to hide it. And that's not helpful for science either. So I think in my mind, there's a lot of overlap between these practices. And I've been trying to use it also as a kind of training for developing more of this um, aggressive curiosity. Maybe aggressive is not the best word, but um, <laughs> yeah, this 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 really open mind. Uh, Elizabeth Matis Namgyal, one of uh, an amazing Buddhist teacher, also calls it the open question, uh, the mind of an open question. I think that's a yeah, very beautiful mind state to try to cultivate. And I think sometimes it's also helpful to try to practice that, especially in these challenging situations, because on your cushion, it's all, it feels like a very nice theory. But, you know, can you apply it in the real practice? Oh, well, Marika, this has been so great. I, I just really appreciate you sharing um, all these stories. I love how you've been able to weave together your various passions and it, it feels very cohesive. Um, and I also really appreciate your bringing that critical lens to the process of science continually as well. Um, I think that's so important. So is there anything that um, that you wanted to chat about that we haven't touched on? Yeah, well, maybe um, in response to this statement that you made of it seems like very cohesive, is that for me, that's actually been a constant challenge. Um, and maybe also for, especially if there's younger listeners out there that are thinking about their own careers, um, you know, a career doesn't have to be cohesive. It definitely is not cohesive in my sense, but it's more like a process. And um, for me, at least what's been really important is to just follow and honor these sort of impulses I have that may not make sense. Um, like, well, for me to follow my ballet impulses kind of just, I wasn't quite sure why I had this impulse, but I just knew I had to follow up with it. And now it starts to somehow merge with my work in science and also my work on meditation. And also similarly with my meditation, you know, initially it was completely disconnected from my work in science. And then somehow they came closer together. And still, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, it was at that time called career suicide. And people were saying, like, don't do it, don't study this. And I felt quite shy about it. I kind of mostly hid it away for other people at the time, but still I knew it was really important to me. So if there are these things that you feel deep down that are really important to you, just keep growing them a little bit and keep trusting that somehow they will find a place eventually when the world is right for it. Because also those kind of things is, is not what you can force. Um, like the world is constantly developing and it's not like you know, you are in charge of your career. Maybe that's another thing that I really want to share with especially younger students that nowadays very often you get this message that you have to just work hard and then you get an amazing career. But it's not always like that. I, I think for me, it feels like my whole career is kind of like just a, a series of coincidences and things that happen and weird impulses I follow. And then somehow eventually in hindsight, maybe they make sense, but it definitely doesn't feel like that um, in, in the middle. And I, I feel like I'm still sort of muddling along and feeling my way around. But I think maybe that's also a very adaptive way to do it because you will just follow your own path and wherever it leads you and you never know also where it's going to lead you. And that's also exciting. And there's also not one path that you could be following. There are so many different ways 
that will all have their own challenges and that will all have their amazing things. So eventually it will all have its own logic, but even if it doesn't feel like very logical and coherent at the time. Yeah, thank you for that. It's making me think that there's something so beautiful about the way the mind works that even if you know, you were talking about holding your interests and pushing them forward, even if they don't feel like they fit together. And then over time, somehow, you know, they start to come together. And I, I think that I've experienced that in my life, too. And I think that's such an interesting thing that maybe the mind just naturally, you know, if you keep holding ideas simultaneously, like the mind starts to integrate them somehow. And then somehow we're able to manifest that outwardly in the world. But anyway, they, I think that's really beautiful advice. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. It was really fun to chat with you. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>